All right. All right, go ahead and make your way back to your seats. Yeah, that's all right. Hey, D, I'm glad that you're back from Hawaii. Sit down. All right. Hey, you know what? A couple of things I want to I wanna address before we dive in this morning. First off, if you're visiting, my name is Eric. I'm the lead pastor. I'm so glad that you're here today. Um, and, and for those of you who are used to being here, aren't you excited that we finally let our drummer out of timeout? Like, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Um, okay, so, so Don has shared with you what we're doing, and I'm really excited about those three different two schools and the YMCA, all three of which care for uh, you know, circles of influence within our community, and we, the church, get to love on them. But let me share with you briefly why we're doing this whole thing. The reason that we're part of, of this serve day is because we recognize, first off, there's only one church in Costa Mesa. Jesus is the head of it, and we are not in competition with any of them. And so, yeah, you can clap for that. That's cool. And so several months ago, because I, I, I get together with the lead pastors of probably about, at this point, there's about 20 or 25 churches that I get to gather with on a regular basis. It started out, there were about eight of us, and we've just been growing. It's really exciting what God is doing. And in one of those conversations, we started saying, how can we tangibly love our community? And we just kind of threw out the idea, well, doesn't the city of Costa Mesa do a serve day of some sort? And we talked about it, and we're like, I think they do. Let's check that out. So Ian of Trellis tracked it down, and it turns out that the, the city has done it in the past, but they're not currently doing it. And so he said, hey, the church, I on behalf of the church, not a couple of churches, the church, would like to offer our help to care for any needs that you recognize. And they said, we're we love it. Please do that. So we picked this particular date. And then seven other cities around the area caught wind of what was going on. And they got on board as well. So we have eight cities in Orange County who on the same day, which is this next Saturday, are going to be gathering to care for the, t the needs of our community in Jesus's name, not in any particular church's name. And that's why I'm excited to say, hey, we're going to gather over at Newport Mesa Church's parking lot at 8 a.m. And for those of you who don't know where that is, if you know where the OC Fairgrounds is, it's directly across the street from that. It's where you guys probably parked illegally when you went to the fair, so you didn't have to pay for parking. Not parking lot. We'll gather at 8 a.m. From there, we will pray, and then we will be dis dismissed to go to our, our projects. And we'll do that until about noon. Then at noon, John, where are we meeting at, at, at noon? We're back at Newport Mesa, but here's the best part of it. Well, it's, it's, it's a good part, but this isn't the reason to show up. Newport Rib is going to be serving us lunch. We're going to get to share stories of what God is doing, and we're going to have some time of worship, and that's at noon, right? Okay, so how long is it? 8 a.m. until about noon, and then if you want to have some great lunch and share some stories, then you stick around for a little bit longer. That's what you're committing to. This is a fabulous opportunity for you, your family, your life group to serve. And it doesn't have our church's name on it, it has the church's name, and more specifically, it has Jesus's name on it. So I invite you to come and join us in that. It's really exciting that we're doing it, and I hope this is the first annual, all right? So with that, we are in the middle of a series that we're calling Beyond Doubt. And the reason that we're in this series is we recognize that we 
all, regardless of whether we've been following Jesus for a long time or we're just checking this faith out for the first time. We all have questions. And I am convinced that our faith can withstand the scrutiny of our questions and our God is big enough to handle our questions. And so we've been asking some pretty tough ones, questions that people that are non-believers ask, but it's also questions that some of us kind of carry around without ever truly voicing them. Because if we were to voice them, we might think that somebody didn't really you know, believe that we are a believer and we don't want to have our faith called into question. And so we just kind of bury them under busyness or we bury them under trying to do good stuff and hope that that's enough, even though we have those questions there, kind of like slivers in the back of our mind. And we looked at questions like, does prayer really even make a difference? Or how about the gospel? Is the gospel true? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? How can I know so that I don't just have to take a couple of people's word for it that have been dead many, many centuries? Underneath all of these questions, however, I recognize is an assumption that we've been making that I want to address today. And that assumption is that we can turn to a document that is several centuries old. And we can use this as the foundation for our answers, which then begs the question, well, how can we trust the Bible? Is it trustworthy? And if so, why can we put our faith in this? Because let me, let me explain to you that it may not seem like such a big deal that we come here and for 45 minutes to an hour every Sunday, we unpack the Bible. We talk about things as we study scripture and we say, well, this is how we should live. And we don't think twice about the fact that this was a document that is several thousand years old that was produced in a culture half a world away that is radically different from our own. And yet we still continue to treat it like it's normative for our life. We don't think twice about it. But for many, many people beyond the walls of this place, they look at what we're doing as a complete and utter waste of time. And that this document, God bless you, they look at this as a completely irrelevant, at best, destructive at worst. And so how can we trust this? That's what I want to wrestle with this morning. And I think that there's a lot of reasons why we can trust God's word, why we can place our faith in it. But let me begin, because it, it doesn't really help for us to start the support of this by studying this, right? Hey, you know, if you were to ask uh, any sort of uh, inmate at any prison whether they were trustworthy enough to release, all of them would say, well, of course I am. So you don't just take their word for it. You need to look at the evidence, right? So let me give you a couple of pieces of evidence. Some will come from Scripture itself, but the vast preponderance of this is going to come from outside of the Scripture because that's the only way that we can adequately support that it is trustworthy and normative for our lives. Does that make sense? Okay, so we will be studying. We will be opening God's word today. But let me begin with this. Let's strip away any kind of spiritual connotations of the scripture for a second and look at it simply as a document from history. And even then, for, forget about the fact that it is the first book that was ever published on Gutenberg's printing press, and it is the most published book in history. Forget about the fact that it has inspired and been quoted more than any other book in history. And we can still make the claim, putting all of that aside, we can still make the claim that the Bible is the single most important piece of literature 
ever produced in history and is one of the wonders of the world. And we can make that case from a purely humanistic standpoint, again, pulling, stripping away anything spiritual from it. Just think about this for a moment. What is the Bible? The Bible is not a book, although we refer to it as a book from time to time. The Bible is actually 66 books. And it's 66 books that were written over the course of 1,500 years, from about 3,500 years ago up until about 2,000 years ago. These 66 books began to be penned. Obviously, one person didn't write all of those books. There were actually 40 different authors who had a hand in producing each of these books. And of those 40 authors, there are, they were written in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic and on three different continents, Europe, Asia, and Africa. And I want you to take into consideration the fact that these 66 books were written over 1,500 years because think for a moment, just to put this in perspective, about how much the world and how much society would change over the course of that time. Just for perspective's sake, getting ahead of myself, the United States is 242 years old, which means that we have ha less than 250 years we've been a nation, but consider how much our nation, consider mu how much our moral norms, consider how much our perspective of the world and our place in the world has changed since the days that the pilgrims landed at Plymouth. How much has society changed? And then you consider six times that, and that's the amount of time that transpired as these books were being penned from beginning to end. And in spite of that, when you put all of them together, there is a cohesive thread that runs through all of them. It, they are unified, although they come from differing perspectives and differing cultures. There is a unified understanding of where the world came from, who it belongs to, and our purpose and our place in it. And on top of that, there is a unified stream of morality that runs from beginning to end, that takes human life as, as absolutely sacrosanct. I think that's the right word. Maybe not. Check me out later. Tell me if I was wrong, okay? That, 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 that treats human life as if it is of utmost value and so on and so forth. This morality runs all the way through the middle of it. And so if we were simply looking at this as a human document that has, by the way, survived 3,500 years of history, has survived the rise and fall of powerful nations, that has survived the fall of not one but two temples, and countless dictators who have sought to completely wipe out the record of God's word because for them, they wanted to be the arbiters of what is right. They wanted to be the, the people who determine what is morally acceptable. And it survived all of that so that we can hold it in our hands, so that we can read it in a language that we understand. The fact that this document, made up of 66 books, some of which are 3,500 years old, is, is simply mind-boggling. And then you add in the fact that it continues to be treated 
as relevant today, that it continues to speak into our lives today, that is absolutely astounding. But I would suggest to you that the reason why it continues to speak into our lives today is not simply because it's an important document. It continues to speak into our lives today because there's a, a, one extra author that we haven't addressed. And that is our Father God, the one who spoke the world into existence also spoke this into existence. And that is something we need to take into consideration. And so to, there's a lot of different passages that talk about how and why God spoke it into existence. One of the most important is found in 2 Timothy chapter 3. So if you would, grab a Bible and turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, please take that one home with you. It's our gift to you. We're going to 2 Timothy chapter 3, which is towards the very end of the Bible. It's one of the last books. So, 2 Timothy is obviously the second letter that was written to a guy named Timothy. Timothy was a young man living in Ephesus, which is a city in northern Asia, and Paul was an apostle who, who not only helped kind of raise Timothy in the faith, but also had invited him to kind of come along with him in ministry and had specifically planted him there in Ephesus to help care for and grow the church, the, the believers that were gathering in that city. And Paul talks about the fact that, listen, Timothy, times are changing. And people are going to be resistant to the gospel message. People are going to begin to surround themselves with people who will say whatever their itching ears want to hear. They're going to become lovers of themselves, lovers of money. I know this sounds completely irrelevant, but that was what was going on back then, right? People are going to begin to have whole pages devoted to, you know, telling people what they're having for lunch and where they're going. And, and, oh, wait a minute. No, that's a different time. Anyway, and then Paul says, but listen. It, you will encounter persecution for the gospel. You just need to know it. I've encountered it, and in chapter 3, he begins to enumerate what he, Paul, had kind of walked through and the things that had happened to him. And he goes, Tim, do not, see, do not think for a moment that it's not going to happen to you, but I want to encourage you to stand firm against this. And that's how we kind of lead into what we're about to read here. We're going to begin in chapter 3, verse 14. He says, so as for you, continue in what you've learned. And have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. You know me. You know Peter. You know, you know the other guys, Barnabas. These guys who have handed down the good news that they have heard. That they have seen with their very eyes. You know who you've heard it from. So continue in this good news. And, verse 15, how from infancy you've known the holy scriptures. Which are able to make you wise for salvation faith in Christ Jesus. And then we come to verse 16, which is a passage many of us know by heart. Because all scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped in every good work. Now, there is so much meat in there that we could mine. Um, but there's really two words in that passage that I want to lean into for our conversation this morning. And that's those words, God breathed. 
Some of your uh, translations may have, have approached it with a slightly different word. They may have used the term inspired by God, because that's really that term that is being used by Paul can, is interchangeable. It, is in, it has been inspired by God. It has been breathed into existence, which then begs the question, well, what does that mean? What does it mean that all scripture is God breathed? And, and more importantly, I think for this is how does he do that? How does he breathe his word into existence? In order to answer that, I want you to just go in your mind back to the beginning of creation, back to a time when God breathed something else into existence. You remember how God creates the heavens and the earth? He just begins to speak it into existence, right? Let there be light and there's light. And let, let, let there be water on the ground and let that be separated from land so we have dry ground and let there be birds in the sky and fish in the sea and animals along the dry ground and, and plants for them to eat. And it was so. And then on the sixth day, God changes up his creation approach radically. Whereas he's been speaking everything into existence, suddenly he gets down on his hands and his knees and he begins to gather the dust of the earth into a mound. And then he begins to breathe. He literally leans down. We, we read that he leans down and... There's a hole in my balloon. Dadnabbit. He breathes life into that, that first human being. We know him as Adam. But think about what his breathing life into Adam entailed. I'll tell you what it didn't entail. It didn't entail when he breathed life into Adam that he possessed Adam so that God's spirit ultimately dictated everything that Adam did, that he was simply an extension of God that was forced to do his bidding. We know this because you, you read to Genesis chapter 3 and suddenly we see Adam doing what, you know, disobeying God. So certainly free will is involved and we'll talk next week about how come that's so important and why he chose to give free will and the ramifications of that to life in this broken world. So on the one hand, he didn't, his breathing into that dust did not create a mud puppet that is forced to do God's bidding. On the other hand, his breathing into Adam was not like a child who blows up a balloon and then just lets it go to do whatever it's going to do. Because I can't control that any more than God if he simply just went and breathed life into Adam and stepped back and then watched him kind of spin out of control. That's not what he did either. Instead, what we see spelled out in Scripture is that when God breathes life into the first human beings, they are both free to make choices, but he still stays actively involved in their lives, guiding, directing, giving direction to them. Now, they can choose whether or not to obey it, but ultimately God is not some absentee landlord that just kind of created the world, wound it up like a watchmaker, and then steps back to watch it spin out of control. He stays and continues to be involved in creation. Does that make sense? Now, let's bring that back to Second Timothy chapter 3. Because when we, breathe, when we read that God breathed the scriptures into existence. Neither of these extremes that we just talked about are true either. 
When we talk about God breathing life into existence, it's, or I'm sorry, breathing the scripture into existence, it is not as if he took these 40 different authors over the course of 15 centuries and used them as ancient dictation software, like we might do with DragonSpeak or GoogleSpeak or whatever we happen to do. He wasn't just talking into them and forcing them to write on a page exactly what he said. <clears throat> In the beginning, comma, God, right? That's not how he's approaching it. How do we know this? If you ever read the scriptures, you'll begin to very quickly realize that each of the authors retained their own personality, retained their own perspectives, retained their own tone and word choice. And so when you read the, the Gospels of, P, or of Paul, for instance, Paul was a trained Pharisee. That's what he had been trained to do, which is why he was so intentional about trying to stamp out the gospel message before Jesus got a hold of his heart, turned him around, and made him the greatest proponent of the gospel. And so when you read Paul's letters, particularly if you read them in, in the original language where you can see he has got these long-winded, I might, if, if Sarah, you or I were grading their papers, we might say, run-on sentence here, but he's Paul, so who are we to suggest that he did anything, you know, um, improper. But he has these long sentences, sometimes paragraphs long, articulating deep, fence, uh, dense theology that he's trying to get across. That's Paul. But, but contrast that with Mark, who wrote the second gospel. And it's radically different approach because Mark's gospel is short and choppy sentences. Jesus did this, immediately he did this, then he did this, next he did this, and it's almost like bullet points. And we might say, hey, give it a, flesh it out a little bit. Give us a little bit more information. And when you read it, you begin to, to get this feeling, of, man, it kind of reads, particularly next to Paul, it reads like a young person writing in a language that they're not all that confident in, which, when you think about it, is exactly the case for Mark because he was a, a young Jewish boy who's trying to read or to write this gospel in Greek. So it's a, second, it's a, a secondary language for him. And so the, the sentences are much more choppy and, and, and focused. Now, one more piece of ex evidence we have for this. When theologians and scholars begin to read the gospels, particularly the, the New Testament, as they were reading it, they originally thought that the Gospels were written in a totally different form of Greek than everybody else was used to. Because they read Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, which are the, the most well-known um, Greek writings of their day. And it, it seems to be one form of Greek language. And then you read the Gospels, and it's, it's different. It has a different feel, different texture, different wording. And scholars initially thought, well, this is because... This is God's way of speaking. This is a higher level of Greek. Because obviously it's from God. It's got to be higher. And in truth, it's just the opposite. When they began to actually understand the society and they began to do word studies, they realized this isn't some higher level of Greek. This is actually common Greek, what we know as Koine Greek. It's the Greek that people would speak in the marketplace. It's the Greek of the commoner. And that's the language 
that the Gospels, that's the language that the New Testament was written in predominantly. Why does this matter? Because God does not simply breathe exactly the words that he wants into his, his mud puppets and strip away their personality and strip away. Does God inspire it? Absolutely. But does he dictate every single word exactly how he wants it, irrespective of who they were and their perspective? No. So that's one extreme. The other extreme, however, is, is that God simply inspired them like a, a child fills up a balloon and lets it go, and it starts spinning out of control, and there is no control over it whatsoever. That's the kind of inspiration we often think when we use that term inspiration. Man, I was down at the beach, and there was this beautiful sunset, and I was so inspired that I went and wrote a poem about it, or maybe that's not masculine enough. Okay, let me try again. I was watching the game, right, and, and, and there was that play, and it was so inspired that I just had to go out and throw, you know, some routes to my boys or whatever it happens to be. You, whatever form your inspiration is, when we think inspiration, we think just this initial spark of an idea, and then we just kind of go with it, and we run with it however we so feel. And that would be, very, that would be tantamount to the, the letting go of the balloon. And it's spinning out of control. And neither am I suggesting that when God breathed the scriptures, that's the extreme. It's somewhere in the middle. Where God has identified people who would ultimately pen his thoughts, his words, but he, he still retains control. He still guides and directs what they write. And so if you have a Bible, turn with me to first. I'm sorry, we're going to go to second Peter. So that's a little bit further to the right. Now we're almost at the very end of the Bible. 2 Peter, chapter 1. Peter was one of Jesus' earliest disciples. And this is what he says about prophecy. And remember, when I say prophecy, I do not simply mean telling what's going to happen in the future. When we talk about prophecy in, within Scripture, more often than not, what we're talking about is that God has inspired somebody to say something. More often than not, prophets in the Bible were calling out what was really going on. We're speaking truth that was often you know, called out and exposed the status quo. And so prophets weren't often all that appreciated throughout the Bible still not often appreciated as much as they should be today because oftentimes those prophets were speaking from God going, beware. Be aware of the fact that the direction you're going is leading to destruction. And he says this about prophecy in verse 21. Prophecy never had its origin in the human will. However, prophets, although human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's a great definition of what this God-breathed inspiration looks like. You have human beings with personality, with perspective, who begin, who, whom God says, I want to use you to speak something to my people either to remind them of how I've interacted with them so that later generations will be able to recognize this is the heart of my God, or to write out wisdom that you have learned over the course of your life. 
Because I've, I, Solomon, I have entrusted you with tremendous wisdom, so share that wisdom with other people. Or you've been an eyewitness of my son Jesus and what he's done. Now I want you to share with other people what you've experienced, what you have seen, so that future generations will be able to place their faith in him. I want you to help people to understand. Or Paul, I've called you. You were trying to destroy the gospel. I have called you out to be my representative and be my apostle and break ground to these Greek-speaking peoples where the gospel has yet to take root. I want you to be somebody who will break ground. And so I want you to write letters helping to advance the gospel cause. And in each of these, God begins to guide and direct through the Holy Spirit what they write, but he allows them to retain their humanity, allows them to retain their personality, allows them to retain even their style and approach in doing so. And the, the product of that inspiration is beautiful, but it's also messy, right? Because let's be honest here, if God had just retained control and literally used those authors as dictation machines to write exactly what he wanted in exactly the way he wanted, stripping it away of any of their limited perspective and simply filling them with a divine omniscient perspective, it would have alleviated many of the discrepancies that we see when we read scripture. Pause for a second. I thought that the Bible wasn't supposed to contradict itself. What are you talking about discrepancies? That's a bad word in church. Think for just a moment about life and how, how we articulate life. And I, I want you to understand, I am going to run through this very quickly. We will address this again in a couple of weeks. We're going to come back to this. But any time in life, you see something, whether it be tragic, like a car accident happens in front of all of our eyes, or something miraculous. Let's say that we pray as a group over somebody who has cancer, and that person then goes to the doctor, and the doctor declares, you're cancer-free, and we can't explain it. By the way, seen that several times. Seen God do miracles through prayer. And we can't explain it. But now imagine for a moment that somebody that's a part of our church comes back and begins to ask you, what happened? I mean, I'm hearing all of the, the, the sharing about, but what did you see? Well, I would imagine that if they talked to 10 different people in this room of what we had seen, you would articulate different aspects of what you'd seen because it was from your perspective, different things stand out to you, and your relationship with that person is going to influence how you share it. Because remember, it's not just about what we see in our personality, but it's also about who we're writing to. So imagine you now are asked by somebody at your workplace, or you're sharing with somebody at your workplace what happened. And, and particularly if that person's not a believer, how are you going to articulate what you just experienced of a movement of the Holy Spirit that did something that you can't even explain by science? Do you think that perhaps the words you use and the emphasis that you place might be slightly different? Do you think that perhaps you're going to fill in some of the blanks that you just assume that your audience knows, like, such as like, you know, who was there and what was going on and what some of the words that you were praying meant? Now let's take it one step further. Imagine that you were called before the physician's council. They want to understand what the heck happened. And so they ask you, what has transpired? Because we're hearing strange stories. 
how would you articulate it to them? Do you think that the way you talk to somebody who's a believer already, a part of your community, versus somebody at your workplace that you have a relationship with but is not necessarily a believer, versus somebody who might actually be a little bit caustic towards the gospel message or, or whatever message you're bringing, do you think those approaches would be different? You better believe it. And again, it's all filtered through your perspective. Now, when it comes to for say the gospels, of which we have four of them, you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those are called the synoptic gospels. Mark probably wrote his first. And then Matthew and Luke used Mark's gospel, kind of the foundation, but they had differing perspectives, differing goals in what they were doing. And so they kind of riffed off of that and shared other things that they had either, for Matthew, what he'd seen with his own eyes, for Luke, who was a physician, he's like, I want to make a study of this. I want to understand what really happened. So he begins to interview all of these eyewitnesses. And he begins to try to put together kind of a chronological overview of what actually happened for this guy, Theophilus, who's a, who is more often a, probably a Gentile believer. Why do we think he's a Gentile believer? Because he begins to explain things like, hey, you know, ceremonial washings. This is, the, the Jews will often wash their hands, wash their cups and bowls and stuff before they do certain things. So he explains things that a Jew would understand out of hand. But he explains it to them because it matters. And so he puts his... Uh, story, his gospel chronologically. But then you come to Matthew's gospel and we start seeing that there's some things that are out of place, such as Jesus healing a centurion's son. He does it much earlier on in the narrative than happens in Mark or Luke's gospel and you begin to go, well, wait a minute, why are those? Sometimes people who have tried to take a literal reading of these two gospels, trying to bring them together, have said, well, okay, well, we start doing mental gymnastics. Well, maybe it was a second time and we're not sure it's the same person and we start trying to excuse it away. When in reality, what Matthew is doing is he's writing to a Jewish audience. We know that because he includes tons of information that only Jews would care about, including a genealogy right at the very beginning that is extremely important to Jews but really doesn't matter that much to Gentiles. He's also trying to prove that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, and he does so by lining up what Jesus has said with what Jesus did, his words with his actions. And because of that, he clumps a lot of what Jesus says together, and then he'll grab a couple of examples of things that he did from his three years of ministry and kind of puts them together. And then he goes on to another thing, another set of Jesus' teachings, and then a couple more things. And so he'll grab stuff that happens a little bit later on in Jesus' public ministry, and he'll put it earlier, and we say, wait a minute, how can we take this to be true if he's doing that? I just go, well, wait a minute. We are trying to force what he's written into a paradigm that he never was intending to write to. Is what he wrote true? Yes. Is it chronological? Not necessarily. But was that his point? Was that his goal? Not necessarily. What he is attempting to do is show to a community of Jews that Jesus is your Messiah. He's the one you've been waiting for. And so what he shares is truth, even though it may not necessarily fit into a 21st century uh, court of law kind of thing where you want to go, just give me the facts and give it to me in chronological order. Make sense? So both of these things, all of the Gospels, are true. 
They may not just, they may handle each of the, the, the stories in a slightly different way because it's coming from a human perspective with a divine guidance, and it is also coming from their audience that they are writing to with a, an intentionality of them writing. Now, one of the things that people will push back and say is, well, wait a minute, Eric, how can we even trust that what we hold in our hands is the words that those eyewitnesses wrote? Because do we have any of the original documentation of these 66 books? To which I would say, no, we don't. Nor do we have any of the original documentation of, say, uh, Homer's Iliad or Odyssey or any of um, Julius Caesar's writings or any of Plato's or Socrates or Aristotle's writings. None of the ancient manuscripts survive to this day simply because that's a whole long time for, for paper to survive and handling and, and, and passing on. So we do not have the original documentation. But a, hist a historic scholar will not throw everything out and say, well, we can't know what's true simply because of that fact. Because the truth is, we don't have any original ancient documentation. And they have ways to deal with that. What an ancient scholar will do, or somebody who is, is a scholar of antiquities, will do is they will look at a couple of things. Number one, how many copies do we have of this that are in that original language? Secondly, how much distance is there from the original to the copy? How much time has transpired where there could be changes that are made? And then thirdly, when we look at all of the copies that we do have, how much variance has begun to percolate in? Do we see changes of thought over the course of the hundreds of years between one copy and another? Does that make sense? This is what a scholar will do in order to figure out whether something is trustworthy. So just kind of give us a baseline. Let me, can we throw up, um, this might be difficult for you to see, but God has inspired the preservation in the Bible in this way. Just to give us a baseline, we've got Plato. I had to read Plato's Republic in college. It was interesting. Plato's Republic, one of the most well-known, one of the most celebrated philosophical treatises on, on life. We have a total of seven copies of it floating around out there in the original Greek. And the time between when Plato's Republic was originally written and the earliest copy is 1,200 years. That's a lot of time. Caesar wrote a whole bunch about this, the, the wars that he had fought in. We only have 10 copies of Caesar's writings. And there's a 1,000 years between the, the original and when we have our first copy. Aristotle, you guys have heard him. We have 49 copies of Aristotle's writing with 1,400 years between er, his original writings and our earliest copy. Homer's Iliad is probably the best preserved ancient document other than the Bible. We actually have 643 copies of Homer's Iliad with about 500 years in between. And, and, and all of those, those are the most well-preserved Greek documents that we have that are contemporaries of the Bible, which is why I share them with you. But then you contrast that with the scriptures, where in the original Greek, we actually have 5,600 copies in Greek of the New Testament Bible. And if we were to expand that into other languages where that it was translated into, we actually have something like 24,000 copies of these manuscripts. 
And when we look at the amount of time that's transpired between the original being written and the first copy being made, the first manuscript that we have a copy of is John's Gospel. There are only 30, or there's 29 years in between original writing and the copying of it, which means that John was still alive when this copy was being made. Do you see? There is not an ancient document in existence that has the same type of ability to check to see if variance has crept in. There is not an ancient document that has been as well-preserved as the Bible. But of course, the question becomes, well, how much variance do we see in the copies that we have versus the original, which we don't have? But how much variance do we see from beginning to end of these copies? And we see that 99.5% of all of the New Testament writings are identical. And the half of a percent, the 0.5%, variance that we see is it does not touch on a single theological question does not change a single theological perspective all it is is details such as spelling and grammar copyist errors that's massive and it means that we can have a lot of faith in the new testament but wait a minute, what about the Old Testament, right? You just said that we've only 30, you know, 29 years or so removed from at least the earliest copy and within 100 years of the, of the other copies. What about the Old Testament? Well, this one, not quite as close. We actually had about, up until the 1940s, the closest we got was about 1,500 years. It was 100, or 1,000 AD was the earliest manuscript we had of the Old Testament, which means that we're at minimum 1,500 years removed from the original writings and the Old Testament, which isn't all that great. But then something happened in, in the 1940s that was a total game changer. There were a couple of Bedouin boys down in the area of the Dead Sea who were playing with rocks, and they were throwing rocks because that's what boys do irrespective of culture. There are some things that translate. And they're throwing rocks into a cave up on the mountain, and all of a sudden they heard something break because, again, boys break things. That is another thing that is universal. So, of course, they're going to go check out what they just broke. So they, they climb up the mountain, they go into this cave, and they find all of these jars that are filled with these old crispy scrolls. And they have no idea what they found, but they figured, hey, this looks old. We might be able to make a buck. So they take these scrolls, they take these jars to an antiquities dealer. And it turns out that they had found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls were written from the time of Christ, from Jesus' time, which means that we have in one find, we've gone from being 1,500 years removed, a full 1,000 years has been chopped off of that, and now we're only 500 years removed from the the oldest or the, the newest of the Old Testament books. And we have entire manuscripts there that they're able to study. So now suddenly they're able to look at, okay, we've just cut off a thousand years of distance. How much variance crept in from these copies to the ones that we've had before? And when they went through all of them, they found that it was 95% identical. There was only a 5% variance that had crept in over the course of those thousand years. And again, just like in the New Testaments, that 5% variance had nothing to do with any theological matter. It had to do more with grammar and word and spelling mistakes. That's it. 
which means that we can have great faith that what we hold in our hands today is the same heart of what was written on those days. So God not only preserved the or God not only inspired the writing of his word, but he inspired the preservation of his word in a way that no other literary piece in history can claim. But wait a minute. Come on, Eric. I've seen the Da Vinci Code, or at least I've read the book, right? And Dan Brown talks about the fact that there's these other gospels, these other books that are floating around out there. And at some point in like the 300s, the, the church got together, the, the, the Catholic church got together and began to like secretly decide, well, which ones do we like? And which ones don't we like? And we'll accept the ones we like. That's the second time I almost went off the ledge here. We'll accept the ones we like, but we're going to just kind of shove the other ones under the rug and pretend they don't exist which would be a gross oversimplification of the process that actually took place. But the question remains, how do we know that the books of the Bible that were preserved, that we call the Bible, the, ter- the, 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 the official term is canonization, that they were chosen for the, the canon of Scripture, how do we know that the books that were chosen were the inspired ones and the ones that were disregarded were non-inspired? It's a great question. And on the surface, it can seem a little fishy. But when you actually look at the facts, here's what happened. There were people in the 300s who began to play fast and loose with Scripture. They didn't like certain aspects of some of the Gospels. They didn't like some of the the ways that the Gospels made Jesus either look more human or made him look more divine. They thought he was just a human, so therefore we need to get rid of any of the... Uh, the miracles that happened. Or we don't like this particular book, so let's just pretend it's not. And we like this thing, so we're going to add something in here. We're going to insert our own theology. And so the early, or the, the Catholic Church goes, wait a minute. People are playing fast and loose with this. We need, to, we need to identify what we're talking about when we're talking about Scripture. Up to this point, we've just been all in agreement for the most part, but it seems like there's some people who aren't in agreement. And so because of their heretical teachings, we're going to respond by identifying what we consider to be orthodox, what we we want to kind of say this is scripture. And if you'll find throughout history, there's a beauty about heresy because heresy always prompts the people of God to actually articulate and define what they're talking about. So there, it plays a role in kind of spurring the church to kind of get its act together. I'm not suggesting you guys all become heretics so you can help spur us along. I'm simply saying that's kind of what ends up happening. A lot of the councils, a lot of the decisions that were made, a lot of the creeds that were come up with, we were penned specifically because they were responding to a heretical thread of teaching that began to worm its way into the church. So, toward the latter 300s, the Council of Constantinople was called because there were questions about, well, when we talk about the scriptures, what are we talking about? And specifically, because the the Old Testament was already agreed upon, they were specifically focused on the New Testament. We have these books that have been treated as Scripture, even are referred to within the Scriptures themselves as bearing weight. Make sure that you get Paul's letters and pass them on. Yeah, there's some things that are confusing to some people, but make sure you guys are reading them. That's Peter saying that of some of Paul's writings. You have this kind of idea that within the church itself, in the early days of the, the, the church, 
they were already looking at the letters that were being written and the gospels that were being circulated as inspired by God. And so there were about 27 of these books that were considered and had been treated over the course of the last couple of centuries, but from the very earliest days, they had been treated as inspired by God. And there was a couple of reasons why. Number one, they were written by eyewitnesses, by the apostles themselves. Or number two, they were somebody who was a close affiliate of that, such as Luke, who was not himself a disciple, but he had interviewed a whole bunch of the apostles. He was known to the Christian community. Or John Mark, the guy who wrote Mark, who was um, Peter's kind of understudy, and so he was somebody who was able to kind of, he had been able to hear these stories, and he was writing down what Peter had experienced himself. And so you have these people that are either eyewitnesses themselves or who were very close to eyewitnesses who were writing into a, the Christian community and sharing what they had heard and what they had seen. And so the early church treated them as inspired, treated them as scripture, and began to pass them around as such. Fast forward 300 years. That Catholic um, group of guys was not trying to impose their own authority onto Scripture and just simply picking which ones they liked and omitting the ones they didn't like. They were simply affirming, this has always been treated as Scripture, so we are going to treat it as Scripture. The only one, by the way, that we, the, the only authorship that was kind of in question in the New Testament is the book of Hebrews. Because we are not quite sure who wrote it. Maybe it was Paul. Maybe it wasn't. We're not 100% certain, but here's one thing we are certain of, and this is one thing that that council was certain of. The book of Hebrews had always been treated as scripture by the early church. Therefore, after a long dialogue, and there were a couple of other books that they had some dialogue about, but after a long bit of dialogue, they ultimately came back to either A, it was an eyewitness, B, it was, they were close to the apostles, and C, and this was universal for all of them, they were all treated as scriptural. Therefore, we will embrace them as such. And they chose 27 books. But wait, what about those so-called Gnostic Gospels that Dan Brown was pointing out? Why weren't they chosen? Well, because they weren't around in the early church. Because they weren't penned either by apostles or by close uh, uh, you know, people with the apostles. They were, in fact, products of the 3rd century and 4th century. It would be tantamount to somebody walking into our church today and saying, hey, I found a gospel, it was written by Mary, Jesus' mother, about her recollections of everything, and I think you should stick it in your Bible. We go, well, where did you get it? I found it. Why are you the only person who's ever found it? And how do you know it's from Mary? And how are we to be certain? I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, it's written on a computer. <laughs> and you misspelled Jesus' name, right? And we would dismiss that because there is not a, a longevity to it. And that's exactly the same thing that the early, or I'm sorry, that that Catholic um, group of people did, is they go, listen, we know these books. We know where they've come from. We know who wrote them for the most part. We know also that the early church accepted them, and therefore we are simply going to affirm what has already been treated as true throughout this entire time. We don't know where these come from. We don't know who wrote them, and we are almost certain that they are written hundreds of years later. Therefore, we are not going to accept them as inspired. Does that make sense? Okay, that's the reason for the Gnostic Gospels not being included in your Bible, so in case somebody asks. So we see that God not only inspired 
the writing of Scripture. He also inspired the preservation of Scripture. He also inspired the, the accumulation and the kind of codification of Scripture. But there's a fourth way that he has inspired it. I'm just going to wrap this up quickly because I've gone a little bit over time. He has also inspired the reading of Scripture, and he continues to inspire it to this day. If you have a book, turn with If you have a book, that was ridiculous. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. We're, we're still towards the very end of the Bible here. So if you find yourself, you know, coming from like 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st and John, or James, go left. If you find yourself anywhere else in here, go right. Hebrews chapter 4. I love the way the writer of Hebrews articulates what Scripture does. Because so often we tend to treat God's Word as if it's simply a rule book or um, a list of do's and don'ts, as if it's just a, an old document that reminds us of what God has done way back there, but it really has very little bearing on our lives, or we might actually read it, right? And so it sits gathering dust. But this is not simply a product of 3,500 or 2,000 years ago. This is something that has been inspired by God's Spirit and continues to be inspired when we read it. And so we read in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the Word of God is alive and it's active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword, which if you guys have ever touched a double-edged sword or one of those knives that is like Ginsu, it cuts, it penetrates, even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitude of the heart. And so we read that God's word, although inspired in its writing, continues to be inspired in its reading so that it is like a lens that we use to look at our own lives and where God begins to read us. I was just having a conversation with a, a couple who's having some real big issues uh, maritally. And he, he was talking about, you know, well, she just needs to submit to me. And he, she, he was using scripture like a cudgel, right? And we've, seen, we've, we've been around people like that. They use scripture... They tear a verse out of its context. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. They tear scripture out of its context and begin to beat people over the head to try to beat them into submission. And they go, brother, you are absolutely on thin ice here because what you're doing is you're using scripture to kind of force somebody into your perspective rather than recognizing that scripture more or less is used to shape your heart. It is used to begin to strip away the parts of your humanity and your arrogance and your pride so that you can love your wife as Christ loved the church. You better be careful about using this offensively when, in fact, this is more often used to shape your heart. Now, is this Jesus used this to defend himself against the enemy. He knew God's word so that when the enemy became to come in and twist the meaning of Scripture even and begin to tempt him to not trust God's word, he could parlay that and say, yeah, but God's word also says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Yeah, God's word says you don't, man doesn't live on bread alone. He was able to recognize God's heart over against the voice of the enemy because he was familiar with God's word. He was familiar with his father's heart. 
And in the same way, Scripture reveals the heart of our Father God, and it, like sandpaper, begins to, if we allow it to be in our lives, it begins to shape our hearts to be a greater reflection of His heart. It begins to strip away the gunk and the, 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 the stuff that begins to clog our hearts. It just kind of filters that out, if we're willing to submit to it. Here's what I can tell you personally. I have found that God's word is utterly trustworthy in my life. Even when I'm not always trustworthy with it. I have never once submitted to God's word and been led astray. But there are certainly times when I have read God's word, understood what it was suggesting, and did something else. And I will tell you that I have wandered into territories I didn't want to go, and I've hurt myself and people that I loved because of my disobedience. So why can we trust God's word? Because it, although it is this beautiful gift to humanity, it, although it is something that is from a humanistic standpoint, unlike any other work out there, it is also the words of God that has been inspired by him in its, in his, in its writing. It has been inspired by God in its preservation. It has been inspired by God in, in its compilation. And finally, it continues to be inspired by God in its reading. And can it be misused? You better believe it. In a couple of weeks, we're going to have a conversation about how we can avoid misusing God's word. How we can approach it in such a way that allows it and the context in which it was written to kind of be our guide in how we read it. This morning, all I want you to have is a, a greater trust in the trustworthiness, the veracity of God's word, and also a greater love for it so that it is not something that simply sits on your bedstand or in your backseat of your car until Sunday comes around and you kind of dig for it. That it's something that, as Eugene Peterson said, that you would eat this book, that you would devour it, that you would allow it to become the nourishment that nourishes your soul. And so I'm going to invite the worship team, team to come forward. We're going to spend some time responding to this, but here's what I want you to see. I want you to see a group of people in China, believers, getting their own Bible for the very first time, just so we can appreciate the gift of what God has given us.